I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman. My guest today is Alexandra Petri, who is an American humorist and newspaper columnist at The Washington Post. She lives in Washington, D.C. Nothing wrong, try again. Nothing is wrong and here's why is her essay collection. Welcome. So excited to have you. Thank you for having me. Sorry for that strange emphasis. (laughs) It's so good to be here. I changed tones too. Yeah, it's fine. Um, Alexandra, you are a satirist in the most unfunny time in maybe American history? <laughs> I mean, I think American history has been one long unfunny time from yes. beginning to end, but it is continuing in that vibrant tradition as we speak. Um, and uh, there's certainly a lot more typing than there ever has been. Yes. Um, but no, uh, it's not in spite of what the book title might suggest a time when nothing is wrong (laughs) quite the contrary but i thought it might be if not fun and cheery at least an interesting mental exercise to both in a series of things that i'd already written and in an overall framing device to try to be like what if i didn't think this was broken how would i sound and what would come out of my mouth and it's, I mean, my husband is a comedian. Um, we've been told, we know, we know for a fact that Donald Trump is bad for comedy. And yet somehow you found, you find a way in your essays in the Washington Post to take an interesting spin at least. And And if we don't, you know, chuckle. We at least um, <laughs> shake our heads at your wit. 
Yeah, you get that sort of, that's why I like being called a humorist because people are like, oh, I'm not going to be like laughing out loud. I feel like comedians, like they have real difficulty. Because right. People say like, oh, like they get their, they fold their arms. They sort of stare angrily at you. They're expecting you to really make them laugh. And if you're like a humorist, people are like, oh, I might get to like eat some cheese and I'll guffaw politely at some point. <laughs> it's a nice bar. It's friendly. Um, but uh, and satirists, people are like, I'm not even expecting to laugh at all. I'm just expecting someone might recommend that I eat babies. And it's like, great, I can, <laughs> I can deal with that. That's a, that's a level. But no, I think getting away from Trump, and I was like saying this, and I'm like, what, are, what have I written about for the past week? And I'm like, oh, never mind. So getting away from Trump is not the key. <laughs> to, uh, but maybe it is the key. It's just, I'm certainly, my mouth is cashing advice that my... <laughs> Pen is not using. Yes, as, as that, that that common saying goes. Yes, as it as it is said. Um, tell me, I mean, because you do, you do. I, I I should frame this as so much of what you do is straight uh, humor writing about politics, but then there there are more social issues in here too, and. Um, and you're so good at framing them. Tell me about writing the column for the post. It seems like, in terms of form at least, you have a lot of freedom. Well, I think that's mostly because most of them appear on the internet. I do get one mm. in the print and like one gets, or like sort of syndication, there's a process, but uh, the one in print on Saturday has to be like 750 words and be vaguely column shaped. Otherwise, you know, your Saturday print reader will we get alarmed at what's jumping off the page. But other than that, I feel like I get to benefit from the gift that is internet writing where you can sort of sprawl over the page and you don't have to be bound by the paragraph and you don't have to do your like seven paragraph structure or however many paragraphs the structure has to be. And so you can sort of like, you can write a whole piece in all caps and I frequently do. And just sort of, you can get all those sort of modulations of tone that- yes. You can, where even though you're not verbally saying things, or you are verbally saying things, but you're not like physically saying things with all the rich nonverbal cues, mm -hmm. you can still get some nonverbal tonal cues in there in some ways. And I also, I love like just nonsense capitalization. Like if I could, I would capitalize every word in all of my headlines. I hate <laughs> sentence case. My editor is just always going through being like, this is not post style. We can't do this. But I'm always like, it's funny when words are just capitalized. It's like you're an old timey, like, 18th century letter writer being like, and I felt the full flower of our friendship. Like, Why was this capitalized? No one knows. But <laughs> so, I, I enjoy every so often getting to do something like that. And then, and then there are times that you do it to great effect. Like I'm thinking the, the Brett Kavanaugh essay in your collection um, says a lot about his tone at his confirmation hearings. No, exactly. I think sometimes you actually get a flattening of tone when you write about things in a sort of traditional journalistic way where it'll be like, oh, the president said on Twitter that he felt that maybe a murder had happened. It's like, but if you actually just put the tweet there, it's this elaborate sort of concatenation of exclamation marks and all <laughs> capitals. And it's a really weird tone. Spelling errors. Um, yeah, no, in a way that uh, is not re reflected when you're just sort of uh, quoting from it. Ah, and now the tea kettle behind me is going to stop. There was a tea kettle, but it's, it's off now. Yay. 
this is this is the new normal embrace it <laughs> have your tea <laughs> tell me about responding to the latest news when the pace of it is so brutal like really viscerally brutal no i i, I think that it's very much like one of the sort of ancient underworld metaphors where you're like, oh, every day, like an eagle is going to come and eat my liver. And that's just going to be my <laughs> daily routine of writing about the news. Um, or like you're like, it's the boulder that you're pushing uphill all of the time, or the like fruit that's dangled over you or you're bound to a wheel. I'm trying to think of all of the like underworld punishments. Yes, very, I feel like you in order to and, and by the time you get it up there, you're like, oh, good. Well, I've definitely at least written about one thing that will be relevant for the next like hour. And then it's like, no, just kidding. Something <laughs> even more unforeseen and even more terrible has occurred. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's like writing in hot water to borrow from Robbie Ross's epitaph. Oh my goodness. Um, Which was also borrowed from Keats's epitaph. Not that, like, I, like the only thing that I do to relax is just like read terrible like 19th century nonsense. So <laughs> I'm just- I love that. Uh, I would like to use like, more what Robbie Ross thought about this. He was asking about literary executive. Although I guess that turned into early 20th century. Um, but. Amazing. And you're so good at like, one of my favorite non, like straightforward political pieces is male authors describe men in literature, right? <laughs> no, I, and it's such a, Explain the piece for, for listeners, perhaps. Well, this had been going around on the internet for a yes. while because people were noticing that, like, John Updike had described a woman peeing in a way that was like, have you ever met a woman? <laughs> Do you know how anatomy he works? works? <laughs> like, so many questions were raised by this description, and people were starting to do parodies, and I'm like, one more can join this game. Yeah. And so I uh, hopped in on that bus, and... I mean, part of it is also just, I have a deep affection for some of these guys. And it always, it pains me when they don't do a good job. It's like yeah. you're reading Tolstoy and he's like crushing it. He's like, this, I know what the tree is feeling. I know what the dog is <laughs> feeling. And he's like, and this pregnant woman just felt that wonderful glow that all pregnant women feel. And she just had a beautiful time. And like her, her hands were probably a normal size. And she, <laughs> you know, it just like, when they miss, it feels so embarrassing because they're like, we're describing the human condition, we're doing the great work, and then they're just really not. And so it's part of, it's, it's not just like, I hate men, boy, they're so no. terrible. It's like, oh, you were so close. And yeah, we're rooting for you. Yeah. <laughs> Figure it out. Well, so a, a notable moment in your collection of humor is um, a little footnote that's, that's in the book which is that you wrote a satire of Trump's proposed budget cuts. And um, it was all about his manliness and how manly he can cut things, basically. And um, someone thought it was uh, legit. No, it was, 
beautiful for a moment to become real news, but it also beautifully illustrated all the difficulties of trying to do satire now. And one of the things that is difficult, it's difficult to do it at a newspaper where people will read the headlines and be like, oh, the Washington Post said something. And so I think they became more careful about that afterwards. Uh, but I did say like it, Donald Trump's budget is perfect and will fix everything that's wrong with the country. And I will tell you why. And the first line was like, it's going to punch America in the face like an eagle or something. So I'm like, <laughs> I, if you read the first two lines, then hopefully you're good. And so, but it, it does illustrate that like often these things are as ridiculous as the thing you would make up to parody them. And they're also really damaging in massive ways. Because I, I, I was trying to get it with like, oh, this is like very uncompassionate and cartoonish. Yes. And they're like, yes, that's what we were going for. <laughs> um, glad that you noticed and approved. So that can be sort of the awkward thing is like sometimes you'll get people being like, oh, thank you for approving of this course of action. And it's oh. like, uh, I, I thought that I did enough, but I must do more. How, I mean, you must, I don't know, I'm projecting now, but it must be a struggle to get the tone just right. Um, both, both for the laugh factor and because, yeah, there, there are people such as our president who uh, don't understand humor that well. Yeah, it's funny because he ha he's, this, he's like mean. And sometimes if people are like, I want someone to be mean to this person, they'll be like, oh, see, he did it. Uh -huh. um, I, I, it it's, it's weird because I don't know that he, he's like deliberately doing wit. Whenever he tries like that, I wouldn't. But like, it is a curious question of, Tone. I think I'm lucky to have an editor that I trust who's able to be like, I'll be like, I'm worried this isn't reading or like, how, how does this sound to you? What if I said it this way? And just get somebody else's ears on that before I put it out there. Because it is often you're trying to figure out, well, here's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. How can I make it clear, hopefully by the end at least, that this is what I'm saying. And often you wind up having to sort of do a turn within the piece where it's just like, and just a brief moment of, hey, so we, we get that this is what we're saying. And then sort of dive back in, <laughs> Check in. making it feel sort of rote. So yeah, it's, it's a weird sort of alchemy if, if you can do it, which I don't know that I always succeed. But when I do, I'm like, I, I, think, I think I got a turn in there. And uh, so it helps to have other eyes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that I, I mean, that I noticed just going through the book is that so much feels like old, old news. Like I'm reading these names and it's like, Hope Hicks? I'm gonna have to remember what she was doing? No, and she's back now though. It's funny, it's like, it's been so long that like we forgot about her and she came back. She came back. It's like, yeah. it, like, it, this would be like publishing a biography of like Mickey O'Rourke or something like right <laughs> before, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a good analogy, um, but yeah, no, it's just time dilation. It, we have that sensation of approaching a black hole where everything is hundreds of years long and you like, there is Tuesday will last forever. And so I think, it's weird seeing the book that's like, oh, the book was like a picture of a moment in time. And therefore it really it's like is a capsule. Distorted. Like who was Scott Pruitt? Will we ever know? I don't know. But you start an like, essay that with the sentence, Scott Pruitt must have his moisturizing lotion. And it's like, yes. 
<laughs> remember that when he would just drive from hotel to hotel? No, I keep joking to people. I'm like, remember, like, so if you're not enjoying being in the fire, we can visit the frying pan for a change. <laughs> but no, it's 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 amazing how long it feels like it's been, and also how successfully I've memory hold many of these things. So I'm like, oh, I, it's, it's even though I'm like, oh, I, you you wrote this. This was you, but. <laughs> I, I mean, and then the, the other thing that I found fascinating about the book is that it doesn't go in chronological order. Tell me a little bit about how you got the order, the structure together. Well, part of it's sort of in chronological order where you sort of, it's like, here, let's go down this primrose path, except the exact opposite of a primrose path, like some sort of horrible lava field. Um, and then... The rest of it is in sections almost by like a attack kind of where it's like you have one of those like histories and it's like it, first it's like here's what happened and then it's like and here's all the artillery that we used and a picture of a you know Prussia <laughs> you can tell what specific history uh, and, and here's the naval ships that were engaged at Trafalgar uh geez <laughs> my reading a sad referendum um but the so because my favorite thing to do as a writer is when you're like, in order for this to be true, what else would have to be true? Right. And I love trying to figure out like, what's the assumption embedded in your assumption? And like, like what fictionalized sort of dystopic world have you created that you're now also making us live in with you by virtue of this like incorrect thing that you believe. And so for a lot of them, it was like, well, if so, but that's one of my favorite sections is the like section where I'm like, here's all the things that I think would have to follow from assertions like these are crisis actors, these children, or right. you know, uh, we should definitely bring measles to Disney World, which reads a little different now. It's like, oh, oh that's yeah. a, a prominent concern that we will will be fresh. I mean, it's what a what a beautiful time for your book to come out <laughs> during a global pandemic. There's something like you're the only author I've said this to, but there is a sweet, sweet irony to this. I don't know. That it's, I feel like sort of monstrous bringing anything out in the pandemic, but I'm like, well, at least people can read it in their homes and they can mm -hmm. support a local bookstore while doing so. And I feel like having something to do in a house and supporting a local bookstore are two things that I am hopeful that people won't be mad at. But I'm also like doing anything at this time feels gross. <laughs> but it's also like the... Oh I, oh, I thought I had some sort of insight or remark, and it has evaporated for <laughs> That's sure. okay. If you think of it, and we can, we'll edit this part out a little bit, and uh, it'll yeah, fix be it great. in post. Um, yeah, I was like, oh, I was, I was about to discover the silver lining, and then I'm like, no, eluded <laughs> 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 me. Um, when I was thinking about it, it was mostly just the tone of, I mean, even just the the sentiment of the title of the book. Um, it couldn't be better to have a global pandemic when you're say, when you're being told that nothing is wrong. <laughs> I disagree. It could be better and it would be better to not have the global pandemic. Okay, fair. Right, <laughs> right, right. Like the, the sort of go, going theme of like satire, people are like, well, like you must be really glad to have this gift. And I'm like, absolutely not. I would rather not have this. And then I could just write dystopian fiction, but it wouldn't also be news. And right. I, I mean, and I would still like to do that. 
there yes there's and there would be plenty to write about you 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 started your column um before trump was elected there was still plenty there was of, still yeah the world still is still on fire about. um tell me are there any stories that you've thought oh maybe i sh i can make this into a column and then found it too difficult or icky or or something else prevented you i think sometimes you'll start by something and be like well maybe there's a way to make this funny and then you'll quickly realize no if i want to write about this at all and i've always tried to let myself know that like i don't have it doesn't always have to be a joke even though i will get a, cu a couple of emails from people being like where are the jokes today i need my jokes uh and it's interesting seeing like people's relationship to stuff that you make and like what they want from you but mm -hmm. i think i also have to be like some things are not funny and to attempt to describe them in a humorous way even though often the way that i talk I, i'm a sort of a you know most of the time a, a individual who uh has a large reservoir of cheer but that's not always the way of like sometimes you just have to respect the moment that you're in yeah. and the thing that's happened and it would actually like i mean oscar wilde said like you know, life is far too important always to talk seriously about it or ever to talk seriously about it but i think yeah. sometimes things are important enough that you should do your best to talk seriously about them yeah. and so it'll often be like i want to write about this and there's no way of making it funny. And I guess I just have to lean into that. And right. So, yeah, and, and sometimes people will like suggest things. I'm trying to think of an example, like, oh, like so, someone should, I don't know, they're like, this could be really funny. And I'm like, we have different senses of humor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, I, that much, does, does that happen often? Do you get requests? Well, sometimes people will be like, or I also love like, like, there's also the version that your like family has where they're like, Oh, like, I see what you do. You should do this. Mm -hmm. And my mom was like, you should write something about like setting people's computers up in the time of pandemic. And I'm like, that's true. That, that could be very funny. And I did sort of write a play about that actually, because the local theater was doing some online plays to try to keep the cast going and Aww. get people working, which was very exciting to be a part of. And it's on, you can check it out online. Um, Amazing. Right theaters homebound. And so I'm like, I think that, that feels like a play. I'm not sure what the column would be, uh, but it's always good to have suggestions. Thank you, mom. Yeah, that's so nice. I know, you know, because my husband worked at last week tonight, I, we're familiar with the trying to make comedy out of sheer darkness. And does it ever take its toll? You seem, you seem pretty well adjusted. <laughs> that or I'm just very poorly adjusted in one of these <laughs> days. Oh boy. Uh, no, uh, I think, uh, I don't know. It's, I, I'm like extremely fortunate in many, many ways in my life. I have like a spouse um, whom I love very much and we have a nice home and we, I have many cherished friends. And like a lot of the important stuff is, you know, going right. And so mm -hmm. I think that is, uh, something I'm grateful for and I like I do really enjoy getting to have a platform and I know that's a huge gift and a huge privilege mm -hmm. and so I think uh, yeah I'm, I'm like extremely fortunate in lots of ways and so right. 
that's a helpful consideration. Uh, but yeah, it it's still, I think if you're, t some things I'm just like, I don't want to have to think about this because thinking about it, I know is gonna just suck. Yeah. Um, yeah. But sometimes you have to figure out like what's a way of thinking about these things that, uh, you know, like you can be like, today is not gonna be the day that I'm gonna, it's tough because it's like, how do you, like, my job is to pay attention to the news and right. hopefully some people don't there have to read all of the news and they can just read a thing where like someone is yelling at the news with them and that might be a better version of the news. Ah, oh, you're, you're helping us. You really Maybe. are. I don't know. Who knows? I, I, I think that's true. Um, and I, I also think, yeah, I, I, I'm on Twitter more than I would like to admit. Any, I mean, most people, if you're listening, you know that. Um, but I feel like the amount of jokes that can overwhelm Twitter when something happens and, and the sameness of those kinds of jokes mm -hmm. is kind of miraculous. Yeah. Um, and then, and then you come in with a slightly different way of looking at it. No, cause I try to be online enough that hopefully I can not do the same joke. Uh, <laughs> and cause there's tons of folks doing lots of jokes. Um, <laughs> there's tons of folks doing lots of jokes and sure are. for our time, but the need, I, I feel like I'm very also ensconced in the pun community and there's like lots of puns on Twitter. And I mean, I'm like a competitive punster. I like go down to, or used to every year this year, they've been, uh, as right. everything is postponed, uh, to Austin for the O Henry pun off one year. I got funniest in show, which was like the greatest triumph Amazing. Of my life, all been downhill since 2014. Um, but I feel like puns are one way that a lot of people, like you can have an instant response, which is just like, maybe the word can do something different. And it's like a great uh, binding of people who are like, yes, I see what you did with that word there. <laughs> like the Wall Street Journal had this article back in the day about like the pun scene and how it's really thriving uh -huh. nowadays because we're in a time of turmoil. And in turmoil, people really love to make puns, which I don't know how true that assertion huh. is. But like Queen Cleopatra, after the Battle of Turin or Turin, she like had this great pun that was supposed to really cheer Mark Antony up where she was like, because Turin also means ladle, which is crucial to understand for this pun to land, which it will not, but it, it won't, it extra won't if you don't know that Turin also means a ladle. And she's like, why would it be so sad that we've lost a ladle? And yeah, after, <laughs> it was not, so that's an example of maybe a pun helping people feel better. And, <laughs> Um, I, I feel like that, that there's the Punderdome game, that's mm -hmm. Joe Firestones, right? And, uh, yeah, puns are, are a helpful coping mechanism. No, and I feel like they like young and old on the page, yes. in the mouth, you got to see the puns. Like, and they're like everywhere, all kinds of things. You have them in like your medieval manuscripts. You have them in your rap songs. You've got them all over the place. They're right. just, uh. Like, I've been reading Rousseau's Confessions, which is great. He's just like a terrible, terrible man. And <laughs> all of it is just like him being like, everyone is scheming against me. And here's information about me that you do not want. It's wonderful. Um, <laughs> and Barnaby's like, well, my, like my companion of many years, who later he married, 
uh, we've reached the point where the only thing that keeps us in common, because my remarks are all too lofty for her, is that we make bad puns and we talk about the scenery. And I'm like, that's a relationship stage. That's but a I'm great. Sorry the remarks were so lofty. <laughs> <laughs> you have to enjoy each other's puns, though. Yeah. Tell me, are there are there any other people making jokes <laughs> that you find funny? <laughs> Oh, man. I mean, I'm a huge fan of uh, Daniel Lavery. I love getting my inbox uh, gifted with the Schaffner Chapner. Yep. Um, I also, I mean, I love The Onion still. I think they mm -hmm. do really good mm -hmm. uh, yeoman work. Uh, it's, I really like, I very much enjoyed uh, this TV show a little while ago called Trial and Error that like nobody watched. I was really sad because they buried it deep in, in the internet. And oh no, what do you know? What's, is it streaming? It was on NBC and nobody watched it and it had like Kristen Chenoweth on it. Oh. And it was like a true delight and very like literally not pegged to any news at all. And uh, I, big fan, Aunt Letter Kenny. I'm trying to think, I just oh, yeah. went from like people who were writing to like, what are funny things, uh, which became broader? Um, mm -hmm. Our Eric Thomas uh, does like yes. a hilarious, like yelling at the news column, uh, which I also very much enjoy. And I'm like, oh my God, there's like, I just love his like deep analysis of like a, like you will like look at a picture and you'll be like, now I've, th this is what all English majors wish they could be. And like, absolutely. And I thought of him earlier when you said that sometimes people take your satire too seriously. Uh, I know that happened to him in, in his early satire writing days. Um, yeah, rite of passage, and hopefully you pass. Yeah. <laughs> you have already made tons of wonderful literary references. So tell me a little bit more about uh, what you've been reading lately. Well, I did the thing where I'm like, I should maybe, everyone says read War and Peace, and also, like, my husband was, a, like, a Russian studies major, I think. Uh, and he, he was like, you're going to love it. Like, Dostoevsky sucks. Tolstoy rules. And I was like, <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, and I read it. And I did enjoy it. But, like, afterwards, I sort of felt that, like, there was supposed to be, like, a prize or something. Or, like, maybe if we all read it enough, then everything would resolve itself sooner. So it would be like, we got a vaccine. Like, I don't know, I was really glad. Like, there was all this hype around, like, the concept of reading War and Peace that I thought maybe, it, like, external world results would be more directly tied to my specific self-improvement action. Yes. Uh, which is one of those really exciting lies. Um, and, but then I've been really just digging the confessions because I, like, I, I've started just text, I text my friends periodically whenever something happens in this book. But my favorite one by far is, like he's watching this old lady who's uh, slowly dying. And he says, finally, when she could no longer talk and was already in her death agony, she broke wind loudly. Good, she said, turning over, a woman who can fart is not dead. Those were the last words she spoke. And I'm like, that's it. That's, really? what I, that's how I want to die. Yes. And after that, I'm like, well, I have to read the rest of this book. <laughs> Amazing. But I love like a good first person narrator who sucks. That's just my favorite yeah. genre. <laughs> like yeah. David Copperfield was a delight for me. Mm -hmm. um, and people are like, well, if you like this, you've got to read like, what's his name? Uh, Mr. I make silver things and I sure have a life. Uh, 
Cellini, Benvenuto Cellini. <laughs> I almost got that. <laughs> I can do a really terrible Jeopardy. That's just me trying to remember people's <laughs> names and giving you all the things that instantly spring to mind. Although when I do this for like personal friends, I'm always like, oh gosh, she has a face. And like one time she made a controversial remark and everyone's like, this is not what you should be leading with. <laughs> like he loves to regulate. <laughs> Amazing. Alexandra, thank you so much for providing a little laughter when we need it the most. Oh, happy to if that is what I've succeeded in doing. Yes, yes. Um, and thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Yay. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.